Good evening, and welcome to the November 2017 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, over the years, we've covered a number of stories about LGBT members of law enforcement who have suffered discrimination and harassment on the job. Homophobia continues to be a pervasive problem in the profession, and tonight we're going to talk with yet another victim. Megan Frederick is a correctional officer with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. She's a transgender woman assigned to one of California's toughest prisons. Since coming out and transitioning to become her true self, Megan has been harassed by her colleagues and her safety compromised. And in the second half of our hour, we'll talk with Dan Nicoletta about his new coffee table style book of photography called LGBT San Francisco. As a photojournalist, Dan has witnessed some of the most important decades of LGBT history right here in the Bay Area. And it's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, November 26th, 2017. This is Greg Morelli with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of November 26th, 2017. A former professor has been awarded over $1.1 million in a federal discrimination suit. A jury last week found that Southeastern Oklahoma University violated Rachel Tudor's civil rights under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The jury agreed with Tudor's claim that she was denied tenure due to her gender identity, as well as a chance to reapply due to her previous complaints of discrimination. She reports having her appearance policed and being limited to the use of one bathroom on the school's campus. The complaints stretch back to 2010, and in 2014, the Obama administration's Justice Department, under Attorney General Eric Holder, announced that it would interpret Title VII as covering gender identity. However, the Trump administration's Justice Department, under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, settled with the university, and last month it withdrew the case. Sessions has since issued a memo stating that the Justice Department, under his watch, will no longer interpret Title VII as including transgender individuals. And in Ohio State, legislator Wes Goodman has resigned after admitting he was caught having sex with a man in his office. The married conservative Ohio State lawmaker was well known for his anti-LGBTQ stances. House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger said he spoke to Goodman after learning of the allegations, and the now former representative admitted to having consensual sex with a man in his Rife Center office. Goodman resigned citing, quote, inappropriate conduct, end quote. No charges of sexual harassment will be brought since the sex was consensual and the man was not a staffer or state legislator. On Twitter, Goodman described himself as, quote, a Christian American, conservative and Republican. And here in California, five men in San Jose have filed a federal lawsuit saying their Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights were violated by an undercover gay sex sting. The men were arrested in 2014 and 2015 in a 17-month operation at a park known to be a place where gay and bisexual men often meet. They were not accused of having sex in public, only of loitering with the intent to commit a lewd act. And one of them even said he was arrested after he rejected the decoy officer's advances. The charges against the men were later dismissed, but they're now seeking damages of $1 million for their arrest. Their lawyer, Bruce Nickerson, said, quote, they're invalid and discriminatory because they target male-male public sex and not also male-female public sex, end quote. San Jose Police Chief Eddie Garcia said, quote, We have not used this type of undercover operations in response to public complaints of unlawful lewd conduct in more than two years since these arrests occurred. We are still responding and enforcing the law by utilizing other techniques, end quote. The chief also said he created an LGBT advisory committee 
established an LGBT liaison officer program, and launched a first-of-its-kind police recruiting campaign featuring same-sex couples. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. First guest tonight protects us all from some of California's worst criminals. Officer Megan Frederick is a transgender woman who serves as a correctional officer in Sacramento for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Under counsel from the Bohm Law Group, Megan is suing the department for harassment and discriminations she suffered while on the job, and it all started right after she came out and transitioned. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to have you here, and I wish we were talking about something more positive, but I think it's important to get this story out. I do, too. Uh, so l- before we get talking about you know what happened more recently, what drew you to work for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation? Well, I'd come from a family where public service was valued. My father was a naval commander and aviator, and my brother had also served in the Navy. And prior to my career with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, I was working as a stock trader. When the tech bubble burst in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I found myself scrambling for a position. And I had always been one to stand up for the weaker person, the individual that needed someone to to, to look out for their interests. And law enforcement was a career that seemed to serve that purpose. So Mm -hmm. I was drawn into California Department of Corrections. It's a huge department. I'm sure that there were a lot of opportunities, but there's some pretty scary places to work there. Was there something in particular about working in a prison that drew you to the job? There was some intrigue. It's this private world behind the walls. And at the time, very few cameras were allowed in there. And I felt an interest in exploring that. It had a number of opportunities for me, both tactically, physically, mentally, and it seemed a challenge, and I wanted to take it on. And it is also a challenge that serves the California public by protecting them, by keeping inmates confined in a maximum security setting. So it seemed to fulfill the needs that I was looking for at the time. Well, I'll tell you, you've got a lot more courage than a lot of cops I know, including myself. I worked in law enforcement for a couple dozen years and love it, but I would never have the guts to go work in a prison. So... My hat's off to you. Thank you very much, and my hat's off to you. So before we talk about the prison, let's go back to your childhood for just a moment. When did you first begin to discover that your gender identity was was different? I really began to quantify that problem or understanding when puberty hit, although I was aware that my desire to be female had occurred prior to puberty. It's when puberty hit and my friends started dating and I felt awkward and out of place. And I wasn't a shy person, so something was crossing my mind that I couldn't understand. I just didn't know what it was. When I grew up in the 70s, and I'm aging myself, there was no um, internet. So I couldn't really articulate and quantify what it was that I was feeling. But I always knew that I had this desire to express a, a feminine self. And it wasn't until I got much older that I was able to explore those feelings more fully and then finally start to figure it out. Hmm. And did you know enough then about how to start the transition process? No, I didn't even know 
that existed at that point in my youth. And the family that I grew up with in would probably not have understood it, although if it had been more prevalent and, and talked about in the news at that time, they would have been accepting. But because um, my father was a very kind and understanding man, as well as my mother, but I don't, I, given the information that was available at the time, it really wasn't an environment that would have precluded itself to me transitioning at a younger age. Got it. So you entered the department and began training at the academy. I uh, did in 2002. Okay. And so you went into it having some awareness that something wasn't right. Um, and you went into a culture that I'm assuming was just like the lawn, a regular municipal law enforcement culture, very sexist, very masculine driven, very machismo driven. How did that added pressure get in the way for you? Well, at that point in my transition, or let me rephrase it, at that point, my transition had not actually begun. And although I had the feelings and knew that there was something different, I still hadn't been able to really absolutely quantify it or articulate it. So what happens when someone is prior to their transition, they exhibit a lot of hyper-masculinity. And so the hyper-masculinity that I was exhibiting at the time tended to lend itself fairly well to that type of environment. It wasn't until 10 years later when I really delved into my transition that I realized that it wasn't the environment that was going to be conducive to a healthy transition. Got it. Got it. And and I think there's a stereotype about uh, prisons in general um, that I'm guessing is probably close to true that sexual orientation minorities and gender nonconforming persons are not treated in the best way, that that there's really some risk for being an LGBT person and being in a prison. Is that still true today? It is true. Those that don't fit in with the expected norm that may dress or act outside of uh, what is they would consider common or expected tends to single you out. And within a maximum security prison, that becomes a quite a dangerous situation. And that's what's happened with me is it just the – the harassment and discrimination and bullying just tended to escalate and to the point where it became near violence. Now, what are some of the facilities that you worked with before you came out? Um, I've only worked at one prison. It's the maximum security prison. It's considered a 180 design level four prison. It's California state prison, Sacramento, and it's designed for some of the most violent offenders in California and probably within this country as well. We have um, some of the most um, prolific amount of incidents within the institution over all of the states, approximately 33 institutions. So uh, California State Prison Sacramento is the prison that I've worked at throughout my entire career. Okay. Now, we talked with Mandy Howard, another transgender woman who works at San Quentin, and she certainly didn't have a very good experience either. Um were you expecting more of the department, though, based upon the number of years you'd been there and, and based upon what you'd seen? When Were you expecting or hoping that they were going to be more supportive when you came out? I absolutely was. In fact, I often say I was quite naive because I thought this being a public entity, and second, 
them being tasked with the uh, enforcing state and federal law, that this would be the place where I would get the treatment that I'm entitled to or deserve as a trans female officer. And it was quite the opposite. It was really an eye-opener almost immediately upon announcing my transition. Hmm. Now, the people that you're dealing with, your supervisors and your coworkers, they all go through workplace harassment and discrimination prevention training. They're all made aware of the laws. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with that, what type of training takes place around those issues? It's not as much as it should. It's um, sexual harassment, and it's more geared toward our zero tolerance policy, meaning that no matter what your gender identity, sexual orientation, ethnic background, religious affiliation, you're entitled to a safe, hostile, free workplace. And if you violate that, you're subject to disciplinary action. Unfortunately, despite my multitude of EEO complaints internally and conversations with supervisors and associate wardens, they just don't want to accept the fact that there is a problem. Every, every person knows there's a problem, but by the silence, it just allows and condones the harassment and bullying to continue. So I had, I had no choice. I eventually had to file this lawsuit because it, they just weren't taking it seriously. And in fact, they were starting to retaliate against me for filing the complaints and making them aware that there was an issue, not only amongst the rank and file, but within the supervisory and lower and mid-level management, as well as the administration. Mm -hmm. So just, it just spiraled, it spiraled out of control. So let's go back to when you came out. Um, that must have been a real challenge for you, though your expectations sounded like they were higher. Tell the story when you, when you told your supervisors. What was the reaction? What happened? Well, I, I tend to be one to just do it. And I had gotten to the point where I felt that if I continued presenting myself with prior to my transition, I, I, would, I would be deceiving coworkers. So when I returned to the institution in 2012, within the, almost immediately I began to um, just show up as – Megan Frederick, and almost immediately um, there was um, payback or kickback or resistance on me being transition tra transsexual. Uh, I had officers telling me back in the day we would never let you work here. We would have ran you out of here. And I've never worked with the officer that had earrings and nails done before. I had a supervisor ask me for my identification card to prove that I was female because he was stating I was out of the male dress code. And um, these types of incidents just continued on and continued on. I was hoping eventually my peers would see that I'm an exemplary officer, I have their back, and a lot of this nonsense would stop, but it just continued and it, and it got worse as time went on. So... You had already been there for 10 years. You'd only, you, you said you only worked in one facility, so I'm assuming you did all of your career time there. I did all of my career time there. I went out in two, late 2008 uh, with a knee injury, and then I returned in 2012. 
So there was a period of about three years and change where I was off duty. And during that time is when I really began to embrace my transition. So I went out prior to my transition and then I returned in the beginning stages of my transition. So um, there was that, it was like an abrupt change, so to speak. Okay. But we're talking about 2012, not 1992. Um, The conversation around uh, the trans community and an awareness of transgender people has certainly at least begun um, in 2012. California state law was clearly in place. And so I think I would have expected more from the managers. Yeah? Absolutely. In fact, I had to recently file on one of the managers and the EEO department refused to accept the filing stating that it didn't meet the criteria. However, it did. I had a two-page documentation of the incident. And the thought process behind that is that they're just protecting themselves. They're looking out for each other and they're not really taking the problem seriously. If they really wanted to take it seriously, they would say to themselves, we have a problem. We have a zero tolerance policy. It's not working for Officer Frederick. So we obviously have an issue in deploying this policy for trans officers. Let's let Officer Frederick go on with her life because this is, she's been tormented enough by what she's gone through. And let's just address this problem and fix it. But instead of doing that, they always throw it back at you. They try to discredit you. They try to tarnish an exemplary record. They try to always make you question yourself. And then as that goes on over time, you start to lose confidence in yourself and it just becomes more hard mentally and physically. Yeah, I can't even imagine. So you had the incident where, you know, you initially came out and then there were a series of things that happened after that. You described how you're, you know, they asked you for Id- your identification to prove that you were female. And so as time went on, w- what else took place? I mean, it sounds like you were put at risk. I was, and I'm glad you, you stated that because what really was a turning point for me was when an inmate informant told me that a kite, which is a note, was dropped off at our watch office where the sergeants and lieutenants and captains reside during the, the working hours, stating that there was a death threat on my life. And it had occurred weeks prior. So when I approached my supervisor and asked him about the death threat, his reply was, oh, yes, we did receive a death threat on you. Um, we thought somebody had informed you. And this is an egregious failure on the part of a supervisor not to inform an officer within a maximum security prison that their life has been threatened. I could have been killed in that period of time from the point of the kite being delivered to them, to me finding out. And so I started to realize that being transsexual in this prison encompasses more than just being misgendered and being harassed and having my car vandalized and having retaliatory write-ups, it, it could literally cost me my life. And so I begun at that point in time to heavily document all of the incidents that were occurring, and they probably run in over 100. Okay, so let's kind of roll this back a bit for our listeners just to make sure they understood what took place here. Now, I, I would imagine that 
staff working in a prison get death threats periodically, at least, um, just from the clientele that they're dealing with in the system. Is that a fair statement? That would be a fair, very fair statement. So, so getting those death threats is, I don't want to use the word routine, but it happens frequently. And obviously the department has protocols in place to protect the safety of the officer. It only makes sense to me that that protocol would mandate that the officer be told as soon as that threat is received. Yes, they are required to notify the officer as soon as the threat is received. And if it's an inmate or inmates that can be isolated from the officer, that isolation is supposed to occur immediately. If it's a large number of inmates, say a a gang affiliation that encompasses a large part of the prison yard, then they may want to redirect the officer until the, the investigation is completed and a determination is found. But none of that was done in my case. Um, and, they did. They, they, I'm sorry. No, I, I just was going to point out, and and we're not talking about sort of the run of the mill mid level prison. This is the worst of the worst in the California state prison system, where the most dangerous people are, and the staff ignored the protocol of informing you of that. It just seems outrageous to me. It is, and it's a great point. Is that these aren't minimum security inmates in there for DUIs or drug possessions? These are violent criminals doing decades of time and have been in the institutional system for sometimes their entire life since youth authority. They're in there for many of them are in there for murders, and many officers' lives are changed in split seconds from inmate attacks. We've had one just recently where an officer lost an eyeball. And so to neglect informing me and neglect following this protocol is very egregious and and very serious. So I have to imagine that you didn't feel safe even working there anymore and and had to leave. I continued to work there. And in fact, I started filing complaints on the supervisor that neglected to inform me and he did not get in trouble and then proceeded to retaliate against me. He stated that he wanted to remove me from my post and put me on first watch coverage relief, which he can't do because I bid my post through seniority unless he writes me up through progressive discipline. So he began a process of bogus unsubstantiated write-ups, which tarnished my record and have an effect on my ability to promote to maintain my position. So it became very serious to me what was going on, and it was time to start fighting back. Mm. So what else happened after that um, that is now all part of this problem? I mean, you would think that after you filed the complaint and these events got brought up to uh, an administrative level that something would have stopped, but more has taken place, right? More has taken place. There's a lot of um, incorrect gendering um, constantly called he, him, and sir. Despite my corrections, I'm, I'm quite, I don't want to say flexible, but I'm, I'm very open to understanding that it may take someone a few times of being corrected to get it right. I don't have to be that flexible, but I am. I try to give individuals the benefit of the doubt Um, We all make mistakes, but between the difference between being harassed and a mistake is that the person harassing you wants to have power over you and humiliate you and ultimately just single you out and destroy you and eliminate you from that career. And that's what's going on. I'm being constantly misgendered, not only by the rank and file officers, and let me 
add in here, there are a lot of good officers there that have been supportive, but there's enough within a maximum security system that have a sphere of influence over other officers where they don't want to step out of line and align themselves with me. So it makes it very difficult. But I've had my car vandalized to the tune of several thousand dollars on multiple occasions. I've been written up for write-ups that weren't warranted, which is not unusual in a workplace where harassment and bullying is prevalent. I've had officers that refused to speak with me the entire day. And I run a maximum security housing unit, so I depend on my floor officers to communicate effectively with me to create a safe working environment, not only for the officers, but the clinical staff and psychiatrists and other um, non-custody staff that are entering and exiting the unit. So their discriminatory actions not only are affecting me, but it creates an unsafe environment for really everyone working around the scope of my post. Mm. And it continues. Oh, well, you know, as we introduced at the beginning of this segment, uh, unfortunately in the greater profession of law enforcement uh, situations like this, yours is not, it's not a standalone. I mean, they've happened a lot and, and there are people who would simply like to get a settlement and walk away from this. Um, but it sounds like you're a pretty dedicated career person and would like to continue serving. What are your hopes for this suit? What, where do you want it to go? Well, I was hoping that I would make a change in this department and I was hoping I'd make a big change in this department. It really needs it. From what I can see, and, and I've spoken to Mandy that you mentioned earlier in the show, and she's experiencing the same issues that I am. It seems to be an endemic part of this institution. It's, it's just a culture of transphobia and homophobia. Anyone expressing any type of feminine expression is singled out. So my hope was to resolve this and help them to figure out how to enforce their zero tolerance policy more effectively. At this point, I'm hoping to make a baby step and I'm hoping, and I hate to say it, but one of the things that makes California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation change is lawsuits. They're a very reactive department. They're not proactive. And when things, these issues start to cost them money, they start to take a second look at it. And I've informed them very openly that I'm not going to be the only trans officer that's going to be coming through those doors. So they need to start to get their affairs straightened out because there's going to be more of these issues. So I was just hoping to at least set the stage so the next trans officer doesn't have it as bad as I have had it. The cumulative trauma of being harassed and bullied for five years has resulted in severe post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, nervous tension, as well as physical manifestations of those issues. And to the point where I can recall back a January of last year, I was sitting on the edge of my bed before work contemplating suicide and thinking that this is a viable alternative to working in this environment and nobody should be placed in that type of situation where suicide is an alternative to going to work it's, it's unacceptable especially in a state agency and one that enforces the law so i'm gonna fight them my hope was to originally stay but at this point i just want to resolve the issues that i've brought forth and and 
try possibly to move on to another career because Mm -hmm. to be quite honest, I've had enough of California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Well, I think, you know, on the grander level, the thing that's stunning to me is that this is an agency like all other law enforcement agencies that is charged with protecting the constitutional rights of its citizens, those incarcerated, those who are not, and to be treating their own employees in a way that is so horrific um, is completely unacceptable to me as a taxpayer, as a citizen, and as a member of the profession. So, and I, and I would agree, and I've brought that point up. I was reading some reviews from some of the media attention that I've brought to this, and they, one individual stated, why don't you just sue the individual people? Well, this department is responsible for enforcing this law, and they need to, to be held responsible. Yeah. And um, I agree. So, you know, it's a huge organization. It, it's, it's absolutely enormous, uh, probably, it's to its this, own, probably to its detriment. Is it, yep. is, does it have the capacity to change in the way that it needs to? I see it as a generational change at this point. I was hoping I could make it a change, and I was quite naive. But I see it as a generational change. I think it needs to start with their hiring process and continue through the academy and into the institutions where they have a more firm broader approach to a a hostile free workplace. But I think it really starts with the hiring process and to try to weed out individuals that are going to exhibit this bullying and discriminatory behaviors as they become officers. So I I think it's a generational change. There's, this is, I believe the second largest law enforcement agency in this country. There's over 24,000 officers that I'm aware of and the only other trans officer that I know of, and there may be others open, I'm not sure, but Mandy is the only other one. And, and both her and I are taking a, a, um, an emotional beating from this department. And we're both good officers, and it's unacceptable. And as the trans community and as a taxpayer, you need to look at this department and say, is this how I want my tax funds to be squandered, discriminating and destroying lives of good people? Yeah, because it's not only – it's not only – the damage that comes from losing good employees, it's the cost of litigation. It's the cost of all aspects of it that, that, that take away from the mission of the department, which is to keep the public safe by keeping those who pose a risk to the public behind bars. That's correct. I've stated the same thing exactly. It, it's eating itself from within with this problem, and it needs to be addressed and resolved. Mm-hmm. And they need to accept it and stop fighting it and try to come up with some viable solutions because as transsexuals gain a greater foothold in the workplace and and the discrimination is battled, for lack of better terms, there's going to be more trans officers in there and they need to know how to treat them with respect and dignity and, and kindness. Learning that should have taken place a couple decades ago. We've been talking with Officer Megan Frederick from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Megan, thanks for sharing your story, and good good luck in creating this much-needed change. Thank you very much, Greg. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, Dan Nicoletta is a freelance photographer with a passion for portraiture and the way people express themselves. Over the last 35 years, Dan has captured in photos some of the most significant events and people that have shaped LGBT history here in the Bay Area. His new book is called LGBT San Francisco, and it tells the story of LGBT history through the many beautiful images Dan captured on film. 
Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really exciting to talk with you about this beautiful new, I'm going to call it a coffee table book, because I think it's really worthy of being on a coffee table. Uh, but before we get talking about the specifics of the book, for our listeners who may not have heard of you or met you before, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to San Francisco and then publish this amazing work. Okay, well, um, my name is Dan Nicoletta, and I'm a freelance photographer. Um, I've been working as a still photographer for 40-plus years now, and um, <clears throat> I've had the good fortune of having the LGBT civil rights movement as my beat, and I started in 1974, and I've kind of been with that mission ever since. Um, it's kind of self-appointed, but I've been lucky in the sense that I've been able to do a sort of long-range body of work like that and that's what the book is about and it's and it's just a wonderful piece of of history kind of all bound up uh, in in between two covers there what got you into photography in the first place what drew you to it well i actually started still photography in working on the high school yearbook um i was a filmmaker before that and i had great dreams of becoming a hollywood director um, this is when I was 17 in high school. I started making my first Super 8 movies. And uh, and so still photography was just kind of a side project, uh, though I took a shining to doing photos for the yearbook. And we put together a really creative yearbook that really isn't sort of your typical um, manifesto to uh, high school years. It's we, we quoted some of our favorite rock songs and we were encouraged by one mentor to really sort of do a creative, almost zine type of an experience with it. So I was lucky in that regard. Awesome. Well, LGBT San Francisco is the title of the book, and, and it does tell a story. You said you started doing photography in sort of the mid-70s. Tell us about the story that you'll see in the book. Well, I think when I hit Castro Street, uh, which was around 1974, it, it uh, was right at the beginning when the LGBT civil rights movement was really being challenged in the ballot boxes by some far right uh, people that felt that gay people's rights should be taken away. And so for a young mind to sort of be faced with that confrontation and that sort of uh, sense of peril uh, of having uh, protective legislations yanked from us, you know, it awakened me to a movement that was underfoot. And, and so I think that was really the beginning. And we did do some communal type photography support groups that addressed those challenges. And, you know, and then there was no turning back after that. Um, we did lose four cities before California sort of triumphed uh, in terms of those types of repeals. Um, but uh, it was an interesting journey, you know. Well, and one of the people that you met along that journey in the Castro at that time was Harvey Milk. Tell us about how you met him and, and how you worked with him. Well, that was very fortuitous. Um, I had been to the city, uh, I've been living there for a year, and I became a camera store customer during that first year. Uh, like many people, I not only enjoyed dropping off my film, but I enjoyed hanging out and chatting with the guys or whoever happened to be hanging out at the store, which was pretty varied ultimately, but there was also a lot of colleagues, a lot of freelancers and um, filmmakers and people were gravitating to that place because synergistically it was sort of known where uh, a wonderful, rich conversation about 
queer rights was happening. And, and so after a year of being a customer there, um, they asked me to come work for them. And that was because Harvey was going to enter his second supervisorial city council race. And he needed an extra pair of hands around the store. And they wanted me to do that, uh, to run the counter as a clerk while he was out campaigning and so forth. And that was a, a great boon to a young kid because, of course, before that, I had lots of um, crummy jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was far from crummy. It was really an extraordinary experience. You must have met some incredible people that came through those doors. Oh, yeah. It was like a parade. I mean, I met some of the great freelancers of, of my life, and uh, they taught me the ropes. And, and we formed uh, what now is known as the LGBT Film Festival in San Francisco out of that store, basically, in principle. Um, and even though at that point we were just a bunch of people with Super 8s and a, a bed sheet for uh, a screen, you know, that, that was the humble beginning of what now is one of the biggest festivals in the world. And you're talking about Frameline, as our listeners know it today, right? That's correct, yeah. Incredible. And it came right out from that store. Well, I think I think it could be um, it could be traced there. You know, I think that some of the other parallel track was those same guys were meeting in each other's apartments, and we were doing coffee clutches around our work, and um, and then somebody got the idea to put it into uh, a public context so that we could share them with our community. And that first festival, which was February of '77. Uh, was so hugely successful, we had to turn people away. And uh, and then we decided to do it again later that year in June, and that technically marks the beginning of Frameline's history, even though at that time it was called something else. But the same entity is what morphed into Frameline. Well, you've got to be pretty proud of that, because it really is a tremendous film festival to today, that's for sure. Uh, one of the pictures that you took that is among the many that are clearly famous, but this one really is a standout, is the picture of Harvey that became memorialized on the postage stamp. Tell us that story. Well, it's a great story. Um, the actual photograph itself was originally rejected by Harvey for a campaign photo because the tie was blowing in the wind. Um, if you see the full frame of that, which we have in the book, uh, the, a gust of wind had picked up his, his tie and, and took it off to stage right. And uh, so we couldn't use that because we needed a straight tie, <laughs> pun, pun intended. <laughs> and, um, and he and I saw fit to not use that one. We used one where the tie was straight. And, uh, and then after Harvey was killed, I found that negative again. It was on the strip that was in his belongings. And it, as if to say take a look at me, that strip just made itself known. And I looked up in the light and I saw that there was a nice smile there. And I was like, oh yeah, that's that one we rejected. And, uh, and so I printed it and, and, and it, of all of them on that role, that really had the best energy. And so I think it was sort of uh, the writing was on the wall in terms of that being the beloved picture of Harvey that would then go out into the world and become a U.S. postage stamp, who would have thunk? Uh, yeah, really, really crazy. How did the Postal Service find you and that photo? I know that they had been 
gearing up to do the project and I think there was a long gestation um, and my understanding was that the art department was looking at several people's work including mine and that uh, they had a conversation with Cleve Jones who was uh, involved on the level of contextualizing Harvey uh, for the sort of you know the textual context of why and why one would do a stamp to him and his opinion to them was there's only one image you should be using and that's this one that Danny took and then the the guy in the art department that became my liaison he was a lovely guy and he really fostered it to the finish line and took you know Cleve's advice and and got me the contract and and then the designer went and did what he did, um, which I think is a beautiful design. And uh, and then I think, you know, within the next year or so, it was actually rolled out with, um, you know, a debut at the White House and then um, and then a San Francisco debut as well. Well, wow. That's a great story. And, and it really it's it's a it's, I think, a perfect picture of him. And what an honor to have your work featured on a stamp. Oh, God, it, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, for one, people are just so excited by that stamp. I think the post office was, you know, systematically would have eventually put that out to pasture, but it's been such a popular stamp that, they, you know, it's still in active circulation. And so um, perhaps Harvey is helping to keep the post, staff, the post office from going bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when I look at the book, there are certainly many years of history that are captured in it. But when I think about the 70s, the one year that stands out to me as being so momentous uh, is 1978. So much happened that year. That was Harvey's first year in office. The flag flew for the first time, the rainbow flag. Um, and then his assassination. What was it like for you to witness all of that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel that 78 was a powerhouse year. And, and just besides the things that you cited, um, I, I just had a really, you know, very poignant year, even before Harvey was killed. I was photographing the ballet Trocadero from the wings. I was uh, living my life to the fullest. I was shooting a lot of theater that I loved. There, there was hope on the horizon. His election had really sort of given us a sense that we could win at the ballot box and um, the challenges were likely to be forthcoming even though we won in California. That's another big marker that year was the No on Six victory, um, which Harvey worked tirelessly to, you know, foster a, a victory there. Um, and so it's almost like he saw the writing on the wall in a way and just just was extremely exhausted by the, the end of his his life, you know. Um, but uh, when I look back at my pictures from 78, there's just massive amounts of amazing pictures. And so there was something about that year that was, you know, I don't know, the veil was thin or something, but it was really a strong year. Yeah, no, it, it definitely was. What are there moments in history, though, that you've witnessed have stood out to you? Putting 78 aside as being something special, did you look back, which one's or which events to you are really the ones that stand out? Well, similarly, you know, marriage equality was this protracted battle um, with lots of ebbs and flows. And, and I think there were times when, 
when the LGBT demographic didn't believe that it could happen within their lifetime. Um, and But they still fought the good fight because, of course, it wouldn't matter. It would be something that you would hope for your children and your children's children. And in 2004 was that sort of first big uh, ritualistic enactment of same-sex marriage at City Hall, which was fostered by Willie Brown's, you know, uh, administration, and Tom Amiano was a supervisor, and there was all this amazing, you know, progressive ideation around LGBT rights, and and so they saw fit to do this sort of, it, was, it wasn't on the books type of wedding, but the city registrar had agreed to claim that the stuff was was valid. And so in San Francisco municipality, there was this huge sort of, uh, I don't know, it was kind of almost like, uh, for lack of a better analogy, peeing on the fire hydrant of, so, <laughs> of society, like saying, we're going to do it anyway. Right. Uh, you know, and it was a lovely, like people lined, and then the word got out and people lined up for like four days and, and, waited in line all day every day for like three or four days and the first one was i think the first well one of those was valentine's day 2004 and so that was was such a charged thing because there were people waiting all day in line and they were they were going to get married and and it was so such a blessed experience and so to be a photographer down there kind of seeing this thing unfold before your very eyes and and I felt really lucky to be alive for sure, that. Sure. Well, uh, uh, yes. And and then to be there for those days where the decisions were announced uh, in 2013 and 2015. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of that a friend of mine took of the decision in 2013 with the Castro Street Theater in the back and, you know, a huge crowd. And I had the fortune of being there for that Friday night on the 2015 decision and so just thinking about that moment and then imagining all the different events that you've had a chance to witness and then capture in this book, it, it's, it's got to be quite remarkable for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I tried to be thorough about the, um, the same-sex marriage uh, struggle, um, but it, it, quite honestly, it got very hard to keep track. I mean, certainly the people that were in the trenches were very on it but um you know i think there was so much back and forth that it, it really became dizzying after a while and but yet you would still go out and you would document in the hopes that some of those victories would you know eventually yield to the final one right you have a lot of different people locals and then there's some celebrities in the book you know as people th flip through the pages who are some of the people that will recognize well, you know, interestingly, the counterculture is is one of those sort of like well-kept secrets in a way. So there isn't a lot of sort of mass pop culture crossover. Um, and I think that's one of the beauties of the book is that you might see Lily Tomlin in a photo with Divine, but not everybody's going to know who Divine is. Um, and so I think in a way the book is a tribute to kind of the... Um, the regional. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that if you look at my work, what you see is not somebody who's just desperate to get near famous people. You know, mm -hmm. I did, did do, um, and that's changed a little bit where, you know, I don't have to work as hard to do that. 
But um, I think that in a sense, by focusing on, on what was in my immediate sphere and who were my idols, you didn't have this hunger for pop culture necessarily. Um, I, I was aware of pop culture, certainly, and I think that's some of the background noise of my body work, but I'm, I'm mostly looking at who's doing something in their own way and kind of uh, for their own self in a way. It sounds selfish to say that, but there, there was an impulse that, you know, emerged in the 70s, particularly in off-off-Broadway theater, which was, you know, we, we do this for ourselves, and if you want to participate and, and have a look, you're very welcome, but basically that's not a, an important ingredient to us. We, we, this is for our own sense of identity evolution, if you will. It's kind of like, you know, the whole Angels of Light and Coquette's thing. It was very insular, but, and of course, everybody did fall in love with them, so that was cool, but it wasn't an, an essential ingredient, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I know one of, the, one of the sections I'm thinking of in there is uh, some history you captured when the movie Milk was produced, and you have some wonderful photos of the real people and then the actors who played them uh, in there. I think Gus Van Zandt did a wonderful forward, too, for you in it. One of the pictures that stands out to me that I really love is the one of Cleve Jones hugging Dustin Lance Black. Yeah, that was a sleeper, too. We discovered that, like, really at the 11th hour of the book. And um, I was so happy to find it because I had some other things of Lance that were more generic and I thought that was really a very special moment because um, those two were very close. And and part of the magic of why Milk, the film, is so successful is is very much part of what Cleve brought to the table. And so I think it's such a great tribute to the both of them working together. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And it's 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 really neat. And of course, I had to do a double take you know, in one of the photos you have of Sean Penn uh, as Harvey Milk. And it was intertwined with a bunch of real pictures of Harvey. And I, I really did a double take for a moment. <laughs> it was kind of cool. Uh, you also have a lot of pictures of, uh, well, let me rephrase that. You also have a lot of pictures of drag. Um, there are Sisters for uh, Perpetual Indulgence. There's the Imperial Court. There are a number of of different drag kinds of scenes in there. And there's some sexuality in there, in there as well, depicted all tastefully done. Was there a particular story or a particular point that you were trying to capture or story you were trying to tell? Yeah, well, I, I mean, because I've been in the art world for 40 years, one of the conversations, which I think is still a critical conversation today is that the, the pinkwashing of the movement is really not appropriate because it is a movement of sexual identity and part of that identity is our sexuality and therefore with with respect to whatever context the, the conversation is happening in, one would not want to um, not include pictures that had reference to our, our sexual identities. And so that to me was a given with the book, you know, and that is one of the beauties of why working with a small publishing house who doesn't have the same parameters of a publishing house that's hoping for a crossover audience might have. And so I was lucky in the sense that 
Real Arts Press stepped up on this project because it gave us a lot of uh, bandwidth to be able to talk about the sexual identity of the community in a way that was honest and not pinkwashing. And then as far as um, the drag stuff goes, you know, I feel like that's, you know, that's informed by my own trajectory. Like I've always loved the theater people and the theatrical in life. I come from that background. And so for me, that was always my go-to. And maybe that was uh, a deficit on a certain sort of um, clinical journalistic template but that is my you know that's my trajectory and I can't I can't wish it to be something else so then there was a challenge for us to end up with such a lion's share of pictures of the theatrical in life and at it being done at its best I might add because San Francisco does it like nobody else does it mm -hmm. it just we really had to sort of beat it back a little bit and say, you know, there's, we could very easily do this book and it could very easily be 400 pages, but you, nobody does a 400 page book of all drag queens. Let's face it. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, you've, got, you've got to put a little Folsom street in there somewhere. <laughs> well, and the, and then, you know, there is more to the movement. That's, that was kind of the, the other conversation that was happening as well. What, what do we want to talk about here that is as vital as the, the theatrical pulse of the, of the community? Right, right. Well, you know, after a decade of, of like the 70s, where people were finally able to be out, they were finally able to be visible, and, and the march towards liberation seemed to be unstoppable, uh, the 80s hit. And I, I remember, and I've told this story a bunch of different times, you know, graduating high school in, in 81 and then reading the headlines of the newspaper, it was so scary. Mm -hmm. As you revisited that time period in the photos um, and thinking about photos for that book, what was it like for you to revisit that? Right. Well, I mean, it was so scary that what occurred in terms of my own footsteps was... I actually did not cover the AIDS epidemic in the first couple of years. I was so shell-shocked. Um, and, and I certainly, you know, was burying friends and so forth uh, right from the beginning. But I definitely did not see fit to figure out how to put it on film. And then I think by 85, I'm starting to realize that I'm late to the game in the sense that there is there's an amazing story here and I'm, I'm blocked on it on some level. And so I started to document a little bit and that's what you see in the book is, you know, we, we tried to honor the, the journey that was happening then for both the people with AIDS and, and their allies, but without kind of um, resorting to a kind of disaster porn. And that was, that was sort of, the, the struggle for us is to how do we talk about this without putting, you know, really sort of gritty photos up and hoping that that would com convey the gravity of it. We really, you know, I, I was lucky in that some of my caregivers kind of allowed me to photograph their, their journey and their struggle through AIDS. And that became the sort of stuff that we, you know, that we used in the book. Mm. Very powerful for sure. Well, where can people go to get a copy of this amazing book? It's called LGBT San Francisco. 
Well, you know, my publisher has an online portal, and you can order directly from them. They are in London, and they do have a $20 shipping charge on top of the price of the book. So um, the other alternative that I foster is for people to uh, go to their favorite local bookstore and ask them to order a single copy you know, an advance order in their name and they pay in advance or they, you know, do it over the phone and then they go pick it up at their favorite bookstore because this book is distributed by DAP Art Book. And um, so any bookstore that has an Ingram account, which is what, Mm -hmm. you know, bookstores have for for wholesale purchase, uh, they're going to be able to get this book and then you can support your independent bookstores in that fashion by doing it in that way. Um, and if you are in, a, in an international setting, then certainly go to realartpress.com and, and directly order through them because they're the small house that had the vision and the wisdom to do this book and also should be supported. Great. And if you miss that website, we will put it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. You can just go there and click to realartpress.com. Dan, where can people go to follow your work? My website is dannynicoletta.com, and it's pretty easy, and it's um, uh, it's a crusty old website that we're hoping to, to revise now that the dust has settled, settled on this book project. <laughs> Very good. Well, we've been talking with Dan Nicoletta. He is the photographer and the visionary behind LGBT San Francisco, a beautiful coffee table book. Congratulations, and thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate you having me on. And that wraps up our hour. My thanks to Megan Frederick and Dan Nicoletta for being with us tonight. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sharon Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCBFM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains.
the silence is quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll take the world to its feet Move I won't dance Bring it to its feet Yeah. 